age kids, we would love to be a part of what we have going on with our Vine kids. I see Miss Barbara coming down and Patrick and Cooper headed that direction. Well, good morning. We are glad you're here. Again, if you are here for the very first time, we want to tell you what an honor and privilege it is to have you in worship with us. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. Um, it is our privilege and joy to uh, have you with us. We have been on this journey for quite some time. I've been working the book of Acts. We have looked at every single verse and every single chapter, and we're going to finish chapter 25 today. And it has been, really, it's taken us a couple of years. We've gone on and off. We've stopped sometimes, but we are in the, the real end of the home stretch. We'll be done early into the summer and uh, shifting gears and doing something else. But we are in the third part of this remarkable story, and it's actually kind of fitting that we're still in the book of Acts because those of you that are familiar with church history uh, and sort of the church calendar will know that today is actually what's called Pentecost Sunday. Today is the day that we celebrate the birth of the church. Uh, Pentecost, as you remember way back from Acts chapter 2, is uh, sort of 50 days after Easter, and it's a celebration of the birth of church, where the, whole, the birth of the church, the Holy Spirit comes into the room and fills these waiting disciples with the, the Spirit of God, and they begin to speak in other tongues, and this incredible birth movement happens in the church, and we have explored that whole first section of Acts. That whole first section is about the birth and sending of the church. Today is Pentecost Sunday, and we are celebrating the fact that the church is given by God to be the hands and feet of Christ into the world. We are the medium by which Jesus demonstrates his love and his grace to the world. He calls us to go and to tell this incredible message, to bear witness to um, his gospel, the good news. And so that was the first movement of the book. The second movement of Acts was uh, the missionary journeys, the, this message that takes Paul all over the known world. And the third section of the book is where we've been the past few weeks, and that is Paul's call by Christ to return or to go actually to Rome, to actually take the gospel to Rome. And, and so we're in that final movement, and Paul is going to be taking this message of his that he's taken all over the world. He's going to be taking it to Rome to stand before Caesar. But it's an interesting way to get there. If you remember, if you've been with us for any period of time, Paul has been in jail for two years. He's in jail in Caesarea. Uh, he had gone back to Jerusalem where things are really dangerous. The Jews had revolted and tried to kill him multiple times. A Roman commander, a guy by the name of Lysias, had rescued him and realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, was kind of afraid, tried to sort the situation out, but the Jews still wanted Paul dead, so they plotted this sort of murder. So Lysias, under the cover of darkness, marches Paul out of Jerusalem with 470 soldiers and takes him to Caesarea, where he meets a guy by the name of Felix. And Felix is the governor of the entire area. And he stands him before Felix and he says, basically, look, here's a letter. Do something with this guy because it's kind of a big problem. He's a, he's a Roman uh, citizen and the Jews want him dead. So Felix puts Paul on trial as this sort of trial. And the Jews bring in this high-powered attorney, uh, a guy by the name of Tertullus. And they bring him in and they sort of stand this trial and they put these charges out in front of him that are punishable by death, essentially, both by Roman uh, kind of means and by Jewish means, depending on which charge you were looking at. Felix looks at him and basically says, I can't find anything wrong with him, and I don't know what to do, so I've got an idea. I'm just going to keep you in jail. And so the Jews go back to Jerusalem, and Paul sits in jail in Caesarea for two years. Well, Felix gets in a little bit of trouble. It's kind of what we started seeing last week. Felix gets in a little bit of trouble, and he's recalled to Rome because he's just a criminal. I mean, he's a criminal. And so they recall him back to Rome, basically to stand trial for his own kind of mishandlings of a bunch of civil unrest that's happening in the region. And he doesn't know what to do. And so as a favor to the Jewish people to not cause some kind of uprising, he just leaves 
Paul in jail. So Paul is uh, not convicted of anything. He's been told by Jesus himself that he was going to go to Rome, and then he spent two years in prison in Caesarea. And last week we saw this guy by the name of Festus that came in. Felix went to Rome. Festus came in. He's the new governor. He's the new guy over the entire area, and he's a much more just kind of righteous person. We don't see him much because he dies two years later, so history doesn't have a lot to tell you about Festus. But he comes in. He just seems to be not so crooked. And so he immediately goes to Jerusalem because he's got this festering problem with Paul the Apostle who's in jail as a Roman citizen that no one's really dealt with. So he goes to Jerusalem and he gathers the Sanhedrin together and he says, Hey, we got to do something about this guy. Tell me what your problem is with him. And they levied their charges again and Festus listens and he's basically like, There's nothing that he's done wrong. And they say, Look, here's what we want you to do for us. We want you to have Paul transferred from Caesarea to Jerusalem because you may remember from last week, they had a plot to kill him. They wanted to secretly ambush Paul as he went back from Jerusalem, which was really similar to what was happening two years ago when they wanted to kill him. Well, Felix, or not Felix, Festus is a pretty smart dude, and he knows that's not right because Paul's a Roman citizen, we'll have to waive his rights. And so long story really short, he says no. But he says, you guys can come try him in Caesarea. And so they march back to Caesarea, and they have another trial. And the outcome is, there's no real thing I can do. Paul is relatively innocent of the charges you've committed to him, and I'm sort of stuck. And so Paul says to them, he looks at at Festus, and Festus says, hey, one last political attempt to solve the situation. Will you go back to Jerusalem and just stand trial with them and let me be done with you? Well, Paul knows what would happen if he says yes, and he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I appeal to Caesar. And this is where he ended last week. And Paul, as a Roman citizen, had the right in the first century, if his case involved death and there was no precedent for it, he could appeal to have his case heard before Caesar. And Caesar at the time was a guy by the name of Nero, who was this awful, awful ruler in history. If you remember anything about church history, he was the one who instituted the gladiatorial rings that would tear uh, Christians apart. He would throw them to lions. He would have his soldiers just murder them. He, he levied the most heavy persecution in all of ancient history against the persecutions. This is Nero, and he's rising to power, and his hatred for Christians is growing every second. And Paul says, I'd rather go have my case heard before him than go back to Jerusalem, where essentially I know I'm going to die. And Festus says, okay, you appeal to Caesar, Caesar, you will go. So that's where we ended last week. So all that history is somewhat important. I know it's just a lot of kind of wordy stuff, but understanding Scripture in its context is actually really vital because it makes a big difference when we understand that Paul has been told by Jesus that he's going to Rome, and then he was promptly arrested and thrown in jail for two years. And we talked about how you and I would feel and the kind of questions that we would deal with of saying, God, where are you? I mean, you called me to this. Why is it so difficult? What are these issues? But in Paul, we see this sort of kind of, confidence, this deep sort of grace and confidence that he has in his own relationship with Christ. And so understanding where Paul is makes a big difference in understanding where we're going. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 25, and we're going to see the um, verse 13, and we're going to look at how the rest of this drama unfolds. Because just because Festus says, I'm sending you to Rome, as you can guess, does not mean it's really going to be that easy, right? So the rest of our book is actually the story of Paul trying to get to Rome. Well, a guy by the name of King uh, Agrippa is going to come into the scene today, and he's got some questions for Paul as well. So let's open up to Acts chapter 25, and we're going to explore the unexpected nature of the gospel and the things that we see and the things that we hear and the things that we're called to do. So if you've got it, turn to 2513, and then let's pray together. 
<clears throat> Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that it is, it is true and it is real. And God, I thank you that context and history are an important part of understanding it. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go through these verses, that they wouldn't be just a simple unfolding of a historical event, but they would be, they would come alive in our heart, that you would speak life into them, God, that you would drive them into our soul, Lord, that we would hear something that would resonate with us, that you would use your Holy Spirit to speak deeply to our hearts. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask for the next few moments, ask the Lord to speak to you, ask him to teach you something. Pray for someone uh, that you came with. Pray for them by name. If you're sitting next to somebody you don't know, pray for, for them. Pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Ask that the Lord would speak to their hearts. Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts and souls this morning. We love you so much. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. Uh, you know, I was wrestled with kind of recapping all that history, but I'd rather err on the side of you knowing and understanding the depth and movements of Scripture so that when you go back in your life over, whether it's tomorrow or 10 years from now, and you open up the book of Acts, that this stuff will make sense to you in a very real way. And so I know that it's not always like, you know, super sexy or whatever, but it's just part of the real truth of Scripture. And so I, uh, I just, I, I want you to, have an encounter with God's word. My real passion as a teacher, as a preacher, is that you would encounter, encounter God's word, not that I can just entertain you. And so understanding a little bit of this history is, is really important because, and I'm telling you, if I were Paul, the, the struggles I would have with God would be so real um, because he has called Paul to this, and Paul has suffered nothing but brutal hardships. He has been beaten and nearly killed. He's been thrown in jail, and it's going to get a ton Worse, And so Paul finds himself this morning, well, in our morning, he finds himself facing another king explaining his actions essentially on trial for his life again. It seems to be no breaks, no breathers, no rest, which in my own life, this is what I long for, right? I want God to give me breaks and breathers and rest. I need moments of peace. And Paul's life is none of those things. And yet he is smack dab in the middle of God's will for him, right? So let's look at how this unfolds. Chapter 25, verse 13. A few days later, um, this is after Paul has appealed to go to Caesar. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king, and he said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. <clears throat> When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it's not Roman custom to hand over a man before he has faced his accusers, and he has an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When, uh, when they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered this man be brought in. When the accusers got up, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of a dispute with a, about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss of how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. And when Paul made his appeal before, held over, he held over to the emperor's decision. 
and I ordered that he be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And he replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice, with great pomp, entered the audience room with high-ranking officials and leading men of the city. And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not live any longer. And I found that he had done nothing deserving death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him here before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that the result of the investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. All right, so we're going to tackle this in two phases. Next week, we're actually going to look at what Paul says to King Agrippa because he's back on trial again. And so here's what happens is Festus had just taken office. He's come into a new area in a new region. He's been there for three days. He goes to Jerusalem. He's got to deal with this case with Paul. He comes back. He holds a trial, and that trial doesn't result in him being able to press any charges, and so he's got Paul in jail still. Well, guess who shows up? King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. Now, King Agrippa was over the bigger region than Governor Festus, and he had come to pay his respects. Festus is now in office for about a week or two, and King Agrippa and his sister come to pay their respects. Now, you got to understand, King Agrippa is one of the Herods, right? He's actually Herod Agrippa II. Now, we met Herod Agrippa I back in Acts chapter 12, and he, Herod Agrippa II is the great-grandson of Herod the Great, who was the kind of in all of control when Jesus was born. You may remember some of that history and how he had tried to have a bunch of people killed, and, and, but he was a big deal, and this whole family is a big deal, and they're, they're really powerful. And they come up and they kind of pay a lot of attention to uh, Festus basically saying, we want you to know that we support you, but really we are in charge here. And he brings his sister Bernice. And there's a ton of rumors going around because you can love your sister, but you can't love your sister, you know what I'm saying? And so he, a lot of stuff is going around about Herod and he's loving his sister. And they come together to pay their respects to Festus, to basically say, we want to honor you, but let's keep in mind who's really kind of in charge around here. And so they begin to talk, and Festus tells him about this guy, Paul. Now, Herod would have been well acquainted with the case because Herod, in fact, all the Herods were Jews. They were Jewish people that were living as Roman rulers. And the reason this is, and those of you that love history will kind of remember maybe part of this, but way back in about 48 BC, when Julius Caesar was in charge of his first dictatorship, he had this guy named Mark Anthony that was in charge of all of his military. And Mark Anthony was conquering and killing people like crazy, and he raised to power Herod the Great because he thought, if I can put a Jewish person in charge over here and make him loyal to the Roman Empire, then we will have our say over the entire region. And it worked because the line of his family was both Jewish but they were loyal to the empire. So they were raised to power, but the Herods were Jewish, and so they were inherently concerned with all that was going on, and it really mattered to them. And so they were very caught up to speed on what was happening with this guy named Paul and what the Jews were wanting and having him killed and all that kind of stuff. And and Festus says, so let me tell you what happened. I went there, and we kind of listened, and I came back here, and we had a trial. But the charges that they brought against Paul were not what I expected. 
In fact, it was this dispute over their own religion about some guy named Jesus who was dead and he's, somebody says he's alive and it's just not what I was thinking was going to happen, right? And so he looks at Agrippa and he says, I don't really know what to do. And Agrippa says, well, I would like to hear him for myself. Like, let me hear his story and let me share with you what I think you should do because I'm King Agrippa. So they say, okay, the next day, that's what's going to happen. So they filled this audience room, which is really sort of a, a room inside most likely the palace, and they filled it with important people, high-ranking military officials. They filled it with aristocrats and people from the city, and they all got in there, and the Romans loved pageantry. They loved, like, attention on themselves. And so Luke records that Bernice and Agrippa entered with great pomp, meaning that they were probably in their royal robes of purple with crowns on their head, and they probably came into trumpets with this huge entourage. And Agrippa was dressed in his scarlet, which is what the governors wore when they tried cases, and it was like this giant sort of parade of greatness filled with this room of really great people, right? Kind of adorning how great they are. And, and they gather in this room, and Agrippa stands up, and he has Paul brought in, right? And chapter 26, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, in verse 29, says he was brought in in chains. So he's handcuffed, and he's brought into the room, and he's standing in front of the king and royalty and robes and jewels and trumpets and stuff and whatever they would have to make this ceremony something really significant, basically be like, I'm king. And Festus stands up, and he says, hey, look, I've got a problem, right? And that's why I brought all you here. This guy's appealed to Caesar, and I've got nothing to write to Caesar. And that's not really true. He had a lot to write to Caesar. He knew the charges. He knew what he had found. He just didn't have the courage to tell Caesar that actually Paul was innocent and should be let go. So what he really needed was some excuses to tell Caesar why I'm turning him over to you and not releasing him myself. And he thought that if he let him tell his story here, right, then he would have that. And so Paul stands there in front of this massive sort of crowd, and Agrippa says, Y'all hear his story, right? You guys hear his story and tell me what I should write to the emperor. And next week, we're going to see what Paul has to say. Now, you got to kind of understand this sort of breadth of that situation to really kind of get a feel for what's going on. And oftentimes when I'm reading scripture, when I'm studying or I'm getting ready to teach, I try and put myself in those different scenarios. Like, what would that be like? And, and there's a couple of really strong contrasts in this text that I think we should pay attention to when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to following Jesus. Like deeply stark kind of contrasts and, and unexpected things and situations. And the first one is sort of this unexpected kind of uh, picture of the gospel, picture of, of the charges being brought against Paul that we don't always expect to hear. And, 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 and Festus actually finds himself here, right? He rolls into town, and he has to deal with Paul. And he's explaining to Agrippa what the problem is, right? And look at what verse 19 says. Verse 19 says, as he's explaining to Festus, or as he's explaining to Agrippa what's happening, he says, I had expected, right? This is not what I expected. They didn't charge him with any of the crimes I had thought. Instead, they had disputes about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. So Festus says, listen. I showed up in Jerusalem to find out what's going on. Then I bring this trial all the way back to Caesarea, 70 miles back here. And they stood up with their attorneys and their kind of high-powered people and the Sadducees from the Sanhedrin. And they levied the charges against him. And Festus looks at Agrippa and says, it's not what I expected at all. What I expected was a legal battle. 
I expected to be able to hear witnesses and trials and to make a decision that would have some kind of impact that Felix, my predecessor, could not handle. And he looks at Agrippa and he says, you know what they did instead? They told me about some dispute with their own religion and about a dead guy named Jesus who Paul says is alive. Like that's what this is all about. It's all about a dead guy named Jesus that somebody else is saying is alive. He's like, that's not a big, huge, legal, complicated battle, right? It's a dispute, a misunderstanding, a whatever. And as I started looking at that, I thought about how confusing or frustrated Festus must have been, right? Here he is wanting to to levy his power three days into his office, and he's got to deal with this little thing that, of course, wasn't little, right? But to him was somewhat ridiculous, I mean, there was a guy named Jesus that nobody is arguing whether or not he existed. Everybody around here knows he was real and knows he was alive. The argument instead is that he's dead, right? Because I don't see him. Nobody around here talks about him. Everybody talks about he's crucified, but Paul says he's not. And as I was thinking about it, I started thinking about how unexpected that must have been for Festus, right? To to have to deal with an argument that was unwinnable on some level. And how the gospel for a lot of us, and really for our entire culture, deals in this sort of unexpected nature. Because at its very core, that really, what Festus is saying, is actually the core of the gospel. It's not the complicated social or political mess that you and I have turned it into. It really is, do we believe this guy Jesus, who is dead, is really alive? I mean, if there is one central question to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's that. He lived. History attests to it. It's true. The claim of Christianity is that he is alive. The claim of the world and the Jewish leaders is that he's dead. And we have politicized and socialized the gospel, right? We have attached things to it. We've levied our moral agendas on it. We've levied our political agendas on it. We've turned a lot of that simplicity into something that serves me. It serves my moral high ground or it serves my political stances on this. And we've turned it into denominations and we've turned it into worship leaders that we love and we've turned it into books that we've read and a multi-billion dollar industry of music and books about how to live out this question, which is, is Jesus really alive? The gospel is not what we expect to hear. Like for most of us, we expect to hear something much more complicated than do we believe that. I remember one time in, I was in Eastern Europe, this was a decade ago, and I was sharing the gospel with this guy. We were outside of this little village in Romania, and I was sharing the gospel with this guy. And Eastern Europe is a spiritually somewhat dead place. For years, they fought all kinds of religious oppression because of communism, and they don't believe that God exists. And they were told if they did, they had to believe in a certain picture of God. Nonetheless, the place, is, for the most part, of course, it's an overgeneralization, but for the most part, is spiritually dead. And I was visiting with this guy, and I was talking to him about Jesus, and I went through this whole little Jesus spiel, and he looks at me, and he says, okay, so what do I have to do? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, what do I have to do to be that or do that? And I said, well, you don't have to do anything. It was sort of all done for you. He goes, no, that's not true. And I said, no, it is true, I promise. He said, no, we don't get something like that for nothing. Like, do I have to start going this? Do I have to give up this? He was running through a list of things, asking himself, what do I have to do? 
What hoops do I have to jump through? What services do I need to attend? What do I have to pay? What do I have to give up to get that? And it was a really a matter-of-fact conversation. I was really caught off guard with it because in my sort of upbringing of the church, right, we didn't have to give anything to get it, right? We just sort of demanded our consumer mentality that the gospel's mine to take, and if I don't like that version of it, I'm going to go to a church that serves me a version that I like. And his instead was, what do I have to give up? Because it's not what he expected the same way it's not what you and I expect. We expect a gospel that serves me that gives to me, that fills my needs. And if it doesn't, I take my toys and I go somewhere else. And I look at that person or that church or that people I meet and I say, well, we left because they weren't doing this and what do you have to offer this? I've got a fourth grader and I need a fourth grader thing, right? They don't like it. And so we, we just consume the whole thing out because the gospel is not what we expect to hear, right? And for this guy... It wasn't what he expected to hear. He could not take something like that for nothing. His entire life, having been raised in somewhat post-communist Romania, was not a get something for free. Not like that. So just tell me what I need to pay or do, and I'll do it. Well, we left, and we couldn't make sense. I could not get him to understand that he didn't have to offer something to receive these religious benefits. The gospel's not what we expect to hear. It's in stark contrast to everything that we have done culturally, and it's in stark contrast to everything that even the outside world thinks. And they have that same understanding of what Festus has, which is, you mean all of this, all of this fighting and arguing over who can dance and what songs are really Christian and not, boils down to whether or not some people think Jesus is alive or dead. That's exactly what it boils down to. The gospel, at its deepest core, is incredibly simple. That God loves you and me so desperately, right? And that we are dead in our sin. And so he sent his son, Jesus, who died, the world knows it, for our sin. But we believe that in God's eternal and glorious power, he raised him from the dead. That if we have faith to believe in him, we have eternal life. It doesn't just begin when we die but that begins today. That is the gospel in its picture, in its beautiful sort of simplistic form. For a lot of us, it's not what we expect. I expect a God that's going to give me a return on my investment. Like if I show faith and if I sacrifice enough, you'll return my financial, return me with financial blessings. You will give me peace. You will fix my broken marriage. You will do these things if I do this. And for some of us, even thinking about giving our lives into that gospel picture means, well, what do I have to give up? I'm not sure it's really worth it, right? I mean, i got to give up going out on Friday nights. Is that what that means? Do I have to give up doing this? Do I have to give up doing that? Do I have to start, stop playing golf on Sunday mornings? Like, what does this really mean that I have to do? Because we expect things. The gospel is not what we expect to hear. And like Festus, I think a lot of us are caught off guard with the nature of God's extravagant sort of gifting. But if you look at the second contrast, it's even more kind of uh, visual because it is a visual contrast. And the second one comes when Paul stands before Agrippa in verse 23, right? And you got to imagine that scene. I mean, that is, this thing, we don't have anything like it in our culture. We don't have royalty. I mean, 
we just don't have the sort of pageantry that goes along with it. And some of you that have paid attention to like British royalty or the weddings or whatever will get a picture of what some pageantry is like, but we don't really have that here in our culture or our country robes and jewels and standing and sitting and when people rise and you rise and this is an incredible sort of kind of majestically worldly moment and the king comes in and everybody's got these rumors about he and his sister and they're a hugely powerful family i mean they are the royal family right herod the great herod antipas herod the first now herod the second all right here in our presence come to our town and his royal robes with jewels and crowns. You get this picture. And then Festus stands up in his scarlet governor's robe. And Agrippa's probably seated somewhere, very strong prominence. Military officials and aristocrats in the room. And, and Festus says, bring in Paul. And Paul comes in in chains. Now we only have one physical description of the Apostle Paul in all of ancient writing. All of ancient writing, we only have one description of Paul, and it doesn't come from Scripture. It actually comes from a, a writing that is in what we call the New Testament Apocrypha, which is a group of writings that are not included in the canon of Scripture. Now, a lot of us are familiar with the Old Testament Apocrypha because the Catholic Bible has those books in between the Testaments. But there's a group of writings called the New Testament um, Apocrypha that are not canonical Scriptures that are sort of added in, and it's like the, the Gospel of Judas and some other things that over time, and this is a whole longer history lesson about why they are not in Scripture, the can Scripture. Well, one of those writings is about Paul and this person named Thessala, the acts that they committed. And the only description we have of Paul comes out of that. And this is what it said. I wrote it down so I would remember. It says, and it comes out of that book, and it says, a man, Paul, is a man of small stature, with a bald head, crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows that meet, and a nose that is somewhat hooked. Now listen, there's not going to be a lot that's written about me when I die. I'm, feel, I'm well okay with that. But if there's ever a physical description written for my children's children, like lie a little bit, like, because this is not what I want to have written. Hey, listen, you know, Treb, you know, he's a couple of things, a portly fella, you know, or whatever, but he says, a man of small stature, with a bald head, crooked legs, Pretty good state of body, you know, not terrible. With eyebrows that meet, a little shaving would help out. And a nose that's somewhat hooked. That's the ancient writing. 2,000 years ago, someone described Paul as a bendy-legged, bald, kind of unibrowed fellow of small stature that had a ah, decent body. That's it. That's the best he got. Now, maybe he wasn't that entirely. I mean, right, these are not scriptural writings. Maybe someone was mad at him or whatever, but that's the description. So imagine that guy standing in front of that room, royalty and grace and robes and crowns and jewels, and, like, imagine, you know, the turkey legs in their hand or whatever, just like this picture of pageantry and royalty. And then you have Paul in handcuffs, bendy legs, bald, just a complete and total kind of picture of the opposite. And I thought to myself as I, I think about that picture, the contrast of the gospel to the world. Does that remind you of anything else? You remember that picture of Jesus when he was standing before Pontius Pilate? The crowd is screaming and they're furious and angry. And Jesus is standing before the guy that's in charge of his ultimate life or death, right? Pontius Pilate and his wife and their, and their kind of 
well-to-do robes, and Jesus is beaten and bloody from the night before when the soldiers had just pounded him with their fists. The sort of humility of Jesus standing before Pontius and this angry crowd. This is not the picture we expect to see of the gospel, is it? I mean, this is the God that made the heavens and the earth, the God that breathed life into your lungs, the God that with his hands formed the seas, the God that Scripture said makes the nations tremble and whose voice is like a thousand rushing streams. This picture, bendy, crooked leg Paul, or Jesus standing before Pilate, bloody and broken, is not what we expect to see when we think about the gospel. And probably the best picture of all of this, right, of these two things put together, this unexpected what we hear, unexpected what we see when we think of the gospel, even when we think of the person of Jesus Christ, comes on the very night that Jesus was going to be betrayed by everybody that he loved. He had just shared a meal with his disciples. He had broken bread. He had given them the very tool that we've talked about so many times. And the God of the universe... The God that tells us knows every hair on your head and knows every day of yours before it will come to pass and every thought that you have. The God that clothes the flowers of the field and allows the birds to fly. And Colossians tells us in his breath, in his life, everything holds together. That God stands up from the table and he takes off all of his clothes. And he takes a towel and he wraps it around his waist and he begins to scrub the garbage and the manure off the feet of his disciples, off the feet of creation. The very creation that he has given life to, the God of the universe on his knees with the servant's towels, scrubbing their feet. This is not a picture of love that most of us can understand. It's not the one that we talk about on Easter Sunday with kind of trumpets and jubilant shouting and all those things. This is God scrubbing garbage off the feet of humanity. It's not what we expect and the God that we come to worship on Sunday morning. But what happens next after that will change the world. What happens next after that will change Paul's life. It will send Paul all over the known world, and it will send him to stand before Agrippa in this crazy scene. Because as Jesus finishes washing their feet, he looks at those 12 men. And remember, Judas had yet to even leave. He was scrubbing the feet of the guy that was going to have him killed. And he looks at him and he says, listen, as I have done this for you, go and do likewise. You know, you want to talk about the unexpected. Jesus knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be betrayed by Judas. In fact, he tells Judas, you are the one that's going to betray me. He knows that every single person in that room is going to run. As soon as the crowd comes with clubs and torches and all those things, they are going to split. And he knows that night he's going to be beaten, he's going to be tried the next day, and he's going to be hung on a Roman torture device and killed. Jesus knows all of that. And he knows that he has about three hours left with those guys. And what does he do? He takes off his clothes and he scrubs their feet and tells them to do it. This is not what we expect. I mean, imagine if you had three hours left with your family. What would you tell your kids? Right? What kind of truth would you leave with them? Listen, shaking them, going, I don't have much time, so listen to what I'm going to tell you, right? Save your money, invest in this, love whatever. Like, what is your best advice? We expect Jesus to be standing on the table looking at his disciples, going, In three hours, I am leaving you. This whole thing, this whole gospel message will be up to you to carry out. 
and it's going to be so hard. In fact, a lot of you are going to die for it. Some of you are going to be brutally murdered for it. Some of you are going to put it, be put in the most difficult circumstances imaginable because of it. I mean, think about Jesus. We expect him to be saying to them. But he doesn't. He scrubs the fill from between their toes. And I'm talking about real manure walking the streets. From walking the streets. He scrubs it and he looks at him and he says, go and love each other this way. Love the world this way. And then they leave together, right? He tells them, this is how the world will know you're my disciples. And they leave together and they go and basically go to a hill where he's going to be betrayed and arrested. The unexpected nature of the gospel always catches me off guard. But what changes the world is Jesus' call for the disciples to go and do the same thing. It's what's going to change Paul. That call would send him all over the world to Thessalonica and Corinth and Athens and Ephesus and all the places that we've seen over that huge chunk of weeks we spent on the missionary journeys. And that call to love the world, the unexpected call to scrub the feet of people is going to be what drives him to stand with his crooked bendy legs and his unibrow in front of King Agrippa in chains facing the entire Roman Empire essentially. Armed with what? Nothing. But the call to wash and scrub the feet and to love the way that Jesus loved. It's not going to end real well for Paul. We know this. We're going to see his defense next week. We're going to see that he actually ends up being sent to Rome, and that's not going to be an easy journey. But the unexpected nature of the call of the gospel and of following Jesus should drive our hearts because it's not what we expect to hear, and it's not what we expect to see, and it's surely not what we expect to be called to go and do. I mean, that's fine for Paul, and it's fine for Peter, and surely it's fine for Jesus, but I don't know about me. I've got a pretty comfortable situation here, and I don't need you, God, interrupting it. But really, God deals in the unexpected. God wants us to turn our lives upside down for him. He wants us to live by faith and to trust and to do the things that don't make sense, that defy conventional wisdom, to love by scrubbing feet as opposed to just using words, to serve by going last instead of being first, to live in such a humility that you stand before the entire Roman Empire with your sort of broken, messed up life and saying, look, I don't have much to offer Jesus, but you get all of it. That's the call of Christ's follower, to live in the unexpected. It's the call of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word, that it is true and real. And I thank you that, God, the unexpected nature of the gospel is, it's convicting to me because it's so counter to what I typically live. It's so counter to what I'm comfortable with. It's so disturbing, honestly. I don't know what to do with you and the picture of you scrubbing my feet, my sinful, broken feet, my broken body, my messed up mind, all the things that I do wrong. I don't know what to do with the image of you loving me so unconditionally, God, that I don't have to do anything to earn it.
and I really don't know what to do with the call that you tell me to go and love people that same way. Lord, for all of us, the gospel calls the same. It deals in the unexpected. It's not what we expect to hear. It's not what we expect to see, and it's surely not what we're, we're expected to go and do. But God, yet you empower us. Just like you did in that faithful Sunday, that Pentecost movement where you, you filled that room with your presence, God, you birthed the church. We became your hands and feet to go to the world. That is how you have called the church to love the world, to become the hands and feet of Christ, to be your witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the very ends of the earth. The Pentecost is the movement and the sending of our lives into the unexpected because of the unexpected. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would just let those disturbing truths penetrate our heart. That God, we would fall in love with the beautiful, unexpected nature of the gospel and its call on our lives. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.